I believe that if Paul had a favorite hymn, that would be it. Think about what you just said in the chorus. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. As the believer, that should be our words of encouragement, our words of hope. And I really believe these would be Paul's words too, that Paul would sing this hymn with all his heart because Paul's desire was to see the gospel saturate every aspect of the life of a believer, especially for those who live in Rome and who he's, who he's been writing to as we've been reading through this letter. Because Paul knew that the gospel brought the dead to life, but it also shapes the believer in how we interact with those around us. We talked a little bit last week about our relationship to God, and we looked at our relationship with others, and Paul's going to continue this view of relationships and how this looks. And so I would encourage you, go and take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to pick up in the middle of 12 and run through 13 this morning as we're reading. We're looking at a number of subjects this morning. Paul's going to tackle some things that deal with the outside world. Not necessarily things that happen within the four walls of the church, but for the believer, how do we interact with those outside the walls? How do we express the gospel in our daily living? And how does the gospel shape the way we see our enemies how we see the government, and how we truly see the world around us. Because I'm reminded that in view of God's mercy that's displayed through Christ Jesus, and in view of the coming day of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the believer should live in a manner that is ethical to what Scripture says, to how we deal with things around the world and how we are shaped by the realities of the gospel. Martin Luther once said, I have two dates on my calendar, this day and that day. We laugh, but you know what? We only need these two days for the believer. We live this day the way Christ would want us to live, but we live in view of that day the day that Jesus is coming back to bring his church home. And that's how we live our lives because for the Christian, there's no truer statement for us to follow and for us to accept. We live in view of God's mercies today, but we look ahead to what's coming. We look ahead to the day when God will exact his judgment and will execute that judgment perfectly, and our salvation will be experienced gloriously. Until that day comes, we're reminded of a few things. There's two things we're going to look at this morning as we study this scripture. Again, looking at relationships. So the one relationship I want to look at this morning is our relationship to our enemies. Because believe it or not, 
They're our enemies. Look with me in verse 17 of Romans chapter 12. Scripture says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I'm reminded that the believer who seeks to obey God is going to have enemies. You are going to have enemies. We read through scripture that when Jesus was ministering to his own people, he had enemies. Wherever Paul or the apostles went and proclaimed the gospel, they had enemies. Jesus even warned his disciples that some of your enemies will come from your own household. I'll take it a step further. Believers, you may even have enemies within the walls of the church who want to go against what God has going in store for us. But two reminders jumped out at me when I think about enemies for just a second. Some believers have enemies because they lack love and patience and not because they are faithful in their witness. You have enemies because you lack love, you lack patience in dealing with people. Remember something, church. There's a difference between sharing the offense of the cross and being an offensive Christian. Do you hear what I said? Listen, when you share the gospel, yes, that's going to be offensive to some people because they don't want to hear the truth of God's word. But there are some who are just an offensive Christian. And I'm going to dive into that a little bit more. Because here's the problem. You think that your job is to play God and to get even with people, and that's not your job. It is not your job to play God. It's not your job to get even with those that hurt you. Returning evil for evil and good for good is the way most people live their lives. But for the believer, for the Christian of Jesus Christ, you should be living at a higher level and return good for evil. That's hard to do. So how do you return good for evil? First, you have to show love. You have to have love for those around you because love's going to keep you from wanting to fight back. But it also requires faith. So you have love, you have faith. Faith means you believe that God is at work and that God will accomplish what he wishes in the lives of those who hurt you. So for you and for I, we place the wrath, and the wrath belongs to God, not to you and not to me. Listen, we live in a world where we want to get even. We live in a world where you hurt me, I will hurt you back. That's the world's mentality. Jesus 
says we're to love everyone. God says, hey, I'll handle the heavy stuff. It's easy to want to get back at someone. A man heard a pastor criticize him over the radio of all things. And this man got really upset. This man was going to get evil with this preacher. And a friend of his said, don't do anything. Because if you pay back evil for evil, you won't let God do what he could do. So the man took the friend's advice and God handled what needed to be done. It would have been easy for this person to get vengeance on this pastor for saying these things that were untrue against him. But he was reminded by a friend that God handles those situations. God handles those things. If you look with me in verse 20 of Romans chapter 12, here's the hardest section in this scripture. We look at Romans 12, 20, it says, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. We sit back and we say, no. Yet this is what God calls us to do. But can I remind you, this is what Jesus told us to do. Take your copy of God's Word. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5 for just a moment. Matthew chapter 5. And listen to what Jesus says as he's speaking to the multitudes. Remember, Matthew 5 is part of that sermon that Jesus was preaching on the side of the hill near Galilee. And he's preaching these words. And he reminds the listener, he reminds us this morning of what we're to do when we have these people in our lives who cause us headache and heartache, who want to do things against what God's will and desires are. Matthew chapter 5, look with me starting in verse 44. These are Jesus' words to the crowd, and these are Jesus' words to us today. Starting in verse 44, Matthew 5. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who are spitefully, who spitefully use you, and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what you do, do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. These are not easy words to read. These are not easy words to hear. But more so, they're difficult to do. Because we want to get even. So we need to pray and ask God for us to love and show the love to those and show kindness to our enemies. Will your enemies take advantage of you? Probably. Will they hate you? 
yes. Because the Lord knows these things. But can I remind you that your job, and listen very carefully to what I'm fixing to say next. Our task, our job is not to protect ourselves, but to obey the Lord and leave the results to Him. Go back to verse 20 of Romans chapter 5. Look at what he says here. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him a drink. But notice the second part of the verse there. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Verse, in verse 20, Paul is referencing Proverbs 25, verses 21 through 22. And the writer of the proverb is urging the reader to return good for evil in the name of the Lord. But notice the wording here. Do you see that phrase, heap coals of fire? The idea in that wording is that perhaps the person doing evil towards you will feel some shame in what they are doing. When they experience what they do as evil being returned by good for the evil. As children of God, as children who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you and I are called to live on the highest level, returning good for evil. Again, Scripture says anyone can return good for good and evil for evil. And the only way to overcome evil is with good. So you and I return evil with good because we're motivated by what Jesus did for us on the cross. The cross should motivate us to love one another because at the cross, Jesus loved his enemies. At the cross, he loved you and me who were his enemies. And because he did that, he is setting the example for you and for me. And I am reminded that one day he will have the final word. So I don't have to worry. Does it mean I'm not going to get frustrated? No. Does it mean I'm not going to get angry? No. But my focus should be on the blessings of God and not vengeance. Not returning evil for evil. Because if we're a people of grace and we're a people of honor, we leave the final judgment to him. You let him do it. It's not going to be easy. But being a follower of God and a follower of Jesus Christ means I cannot join a culture of hate. Join a culture of violence. I should be different because I'm a child of God. I shouldn't want to jump on the bandwagon when people want to heap evil on those who do evil and heap it on those in ways that should never be done. Because God is in control. Let God handle the heavy stuff. Because what you're going to see in a transition here is Paul's going to go from our relationships to our enemies to our relationship to the state. And I use the word state in your outline, but what we're talking about this morning is government. We're talking about government. And this morning, I'm going to be very careful here, and I shared this with the Sunday school class, I am not talking politics this morning. I want to make sure we're clear on this. We're talking about our relationship to the state. 
Look with me starting in verse 1 of chapter 13 of Romans. And I'm going to tell you right now, some of you are going to get angry about what we're going to read. But remember, it's the truth in God's words. It's not my opinion. Starting in verse 1 of 13. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. I want to pause right there. Remember what I told you a moment ago, that vengeance belongs to God because God executes perfect judgment. And God is a God who's going to be true to his word. And knowing he's true to his word, we shift gears to Romans 13. Romans 13, listen very carefully. Romans 13 is about submitting to governing authorities. And listen, that idea is not popular. Because we are human and we don't like being told what to do. We don't. But let me remind you of something this morning. That we are in the condition we're in because we are sons and daughters of Adam. You are a sinner. I'm a sinner because sin came into the world. And here's the issue. Rebellion against the authority is as old as the garden. Rebellion is as old as the garden. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. You see rebellion. Listen, we don't like it when the authority tells us what to do. Listen, we don't like it when God tells us what to do. We would rather listen to ourselves or listen to someone else than listen to what God has for you. But can I remind you this morning that God established three institutions. He established the home, he established the government, and he established the church. Those are his establishments. Now, I also want to remind you that Paul is writing to a group of people in Rome. This is a group of believers that aren't experiencing persecution yet, but it's coming. At the time, the Jewish belief system was allowed in Rome. The Jews were free to worship as they pleased. So when this church was established of both Jew and Gentile, it was allowed to worship as it could. But there was a day coming. There was a day coming when a man named Nero would be in charge and he would run roughshod over the people of Rome to a point where he wanted to execute Christians for their beliefs. This was a man who was clearly going for his own gain. But here was the challenge for this early church. They had to make a stand and make a choice. 
They couldn't burn incense on the altar to God and then turn around and say, Hail Caesar. They had to pick one or the other. In our day, but in our time, we see people rioting in rebellion and calling it doing so in the name of Jesus Christ. We have people who rebel and say, Jesus is leading the way. Listen, as a believer, as a Christian, if you disobey the law, if you rebel against authorities and you are allowed to do whatever you want to do, how can you call yourself a believer? Nowhere in Scripture do we read rebel against authority. Nowhere in Scripture do we say stick your tongue out to the officer who pulls you over for speeding. Scripture doesn't say we can rebel. Scripture doesn't say we can riot. Scripture says we respect the authority. Now I'm getting ahead of myself here for just a second. We may not like the man in authority, but we pray for him. Let me say it again. You may not like the person sitting in the chair, but the Bible says you pray for him. Because God allowed him to be there. Because God established the authority, not the person in the chair. So what do we do? In submitting to government, submitting to authority, what do we do? Why do we do it? Why submit to authority? Well, here's the first one. We do it for wrath's sake. We read about it in these first four verses. Remember, it is God who established the governments in the world. But listen, God is not responsible for the sins of the person sitting in the chair. Whatever that chair is, whatever chair of authority you're thinking of at this moment, God is not responsible for their sins. But God is responsible for establishing the position. Because ultimately, all authority comes originally from God. But what happens when the man sitting or woman sitting in the chair gets a big head and thinks they're in control? God intervenes. Take your Bibles for just a moment. Turn over to Daniel chapter 4. Because I want to show you what happens to someone in a position of authority when they get a big head. Daniel chapter 4. The man we're looking at is Nebuchadnezzar. We know his story. Back in chapter 3, he tried to build a statue and make everybody worship it. We learned about three Hebrew young men who chose not to worship that statue and how God intervened. But then Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he gets a big head. That's the word I'm going to use. He thinks this power is all his to do what he wants to but I want to show you a few verses in Daniel chapter 4 that remind us that God is in control of those in authority. Look at me in verse 17 of Daniel chapter 4. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the Holy One. In order that the living may know 
that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowliest man. What Nebuchadnezzar has just learned in these words is that God is in control, that it's God who rules the kingdom of men, and it is God who puts the man in the chair. Now jump down with me down to verse 25. And this is what happens when those in authority get a big head. Because this is the word that Nebuchadnezzar hears. Verse 25, they, that's the people, they shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times this shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Jump down to verse 32, same chapter. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like an oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. What Nebuchadnezzar learned in those verses is that you are going to be removed from authority and for seven years you're going to wander the field and eat grass like an ox until you understand that the Most High is in control, that the Most High has established the throne you are sitting on. So in thinking about this, this idea for the believer to want to resist the law. To resist the law is to resist the God who established government in the world. And this means inviting punishment. So when you resist the law, you're resisting God because God has established the authority over us. But listen, people in authority, they must bear the sword, which means they have the power and they have the authority. They must bear that responsibility because God established the human government because we are sinful and we need to have some kind of authority over us. When Derek was a state patrol officer, his job was to stop people who were speeding. Am I correct there, for the most part? Just say, please say this, thank you. <laughs> Do you think people liked it when they pulled up behind him and was flashing his blue lights? No. But let me ask Derek a question. Did you ever pull over anybody for following the rules? How come? Not your job. We think, we think that because we can do everyone, we can ignore those in position of authority over us. Here's the reminder. And listen, 
I respected Derek long before I knew who he was because of that blue uniform. Because that's a position of authority. It's a position of respect. But here's the issue. And here's what I'm reminded of when we look at using work, I'm not preaching on this one politics. Again, you may not like the person in authority, but here is the thing. Even though we cannot always respect the person in office, we must respect the office because government was ordained by God. Think about Paul for a moment. There was more than one occasion that Paul used his, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen card to get out of trouble. Paul respected the authority. Paul respected the government. And we know Paul respected it because of the number of centurions he dealt with. These were men of position. These were men of authority. That even though every official may not be a believer, tentatively and technically, they're still, according to Scripture, a minister of God because they're put in a position established by God. So we respect the government and those in authority. We do it for wrath's sake because God is the establisher of the office. But here's why else we follow this and why else we respect government. We do it for conscience' sake. Because of our conscience. Look at verses 5 and 7 out of Romans 13. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but for conscience's sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministering, ministers attending continually, continuously to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So we're moving a little bit higher as the reason why. What motivates us to respect government? What motivates us to follow those in authority over us? Here's the thought. Any citizen can obey the law because they fear, because of the fear of punishment. But a Christian ought to obey because of conscience. I don't fear because I'm trying not to get pulled over. My conscience tells me the reason it's 45 is because that's the speed limit. I'm not worried about possibly getting pulled over if I'm allowing my conscience to do its job and letting the Spirit guide me in the decisions I make. Listen, will the government interfere with your conscience? Yes. They will drive you crazy. But I'm reminded as a Christian, it's my call to obey God rather than men. I don't obey men because of their name. I obey them because of position. But ultimately, my obeying is not based on who they are, but what God's word tells me to do. Listen, in a, with a good conscience, and I'll tell you this, and I said I wasn't going to talk politics, I'm going to get myself in trouble right now. So here's what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to move from behind this sacred desk so I don't get myself in trouble. When it comes to politics, I cannot vote for anyone that has a view that's contrary to that vote right there. Yet, there are some people that will vote for someone because of a name, because of a party, and they're not letting their conscience speak to them. Their idea is, well, I'll vote for this person because they're going to do great things. That's baloney. Especially if what they're trying to push is contrary to what you believe about that word. Because if it's contrary to the word, then you're not allowing your conscience to do its job. Which means you're not letting the spirit guide you into who you choose for office. Again, you may not like the person and you pray for them, but if they say anything that contradicts the word of God, why would you vote for them in the first place? But there are people who will do that. I'll get back here and get back to what's important. When the law is right, the Christian must obey because of a good conscience. As I was reading this and thinking about that word, did you know that years ago, the United States government established something known as the Conscience Fund? A conscience fund. This was designed for people to pay their debts and remain anonymous. There are some pros and cons to this. And as I researched it, it's not as prevalent as it was years and years ago, but some cities have this as well. This fund is set up so you can pay and remain anonymous. I was reading about a city that was investigating some of its residents because of tax fraud. And the city announced that they were going to uh, made some indictments against a number of citizens in the community. But they didn't release the names of the individuals who hadn't paid their taxes. So here's what happened. A number of people visited City Hall to straighten out their taxes. The kicker was a lot of the individuals who came to straighten out their taxes weren't on the list. Because their conscience got the better of I read about another man who sent a check to the IRS. He said, here's $1,000 for the taxes I own, and if my conscience, conscience allows it, I'll pay the rest later. <laughs> it's about our conscience. What is our working? Listen, our desire is to do, as a Christian, to do the right thing. Listen, here's another popular, unpopular thought. Look at verse 7 of Romans 13. Nobody likes these words. Render therefore all their due, taxes to whom taxes, customs to customs, fear to fear, honor to honor. Listen, we don't like to pay taxes, but if you don't pay your taxes, you're disrespecting the law. And as a Christian, we are called not to disrespect the law. Because if I disrespect the law, I am disrespecting God. And those things cannot go together because the conscience of the believer says, I do the right thing because it's God's word that tells me to do these things. Listen, 
you will not agree with what they do with our money. Nobody agrees with how they handle the money we give them. But as a believer, I don't want to violate my conscience and not pay it. Because that is what we're to do. So we do this for wrath's sake. We do this for conscience's sake. We also do this for love's sake. Look with me in verses 8 through 10. Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul's making this circle a little bigger because he's talking about our responsibility to other people outside of those in position of authority. To love one another is the basic principle of the Christian life. It's the new commandment that Jesus told us. So we practice love. And if we're practicing love, there's no need for other laws because love covers it all. And if we love one another, we will not want to sin against one another. It's interesting to note that the Ten Commandments are not referred often in the New Testament. They're here and they're there in some places, but it's not overwhelming in the New Testament. Here's another thing. Did you know the Sabbath is not quoted at all in the epistles? None of Paul's writings talk about keeping the Sabbath holy. But remember, why? Why is the Sabbath not mentioned more? Why are the Ten Commandments mentioned more? Because we do not live under law, but live under what? Grace. We live under grace. So our motive for obeying God and helping others is the love of Christ in our hearts. That's what motivates us to follow the rules and follow the authority because of the love we have for one another. But here's a question that's often debated. Because look at the scripture here. Verse 8. Owe no one anything. Owe no one anything. The question is, does this refer to a Christian's financial practices? Some say yes. Some people actually say yes, and that is a sin to be in debt. J. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China, and he made a vow to never incur debt, and he used this verse to base that thought on. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, also had the same conviction. But the Bible, however, does not forbid borrowing are legal financial transactions that involve interest. Listen, the Bible says don't charge a higher entrance, interest, don't rob your brother, and don't fail to pay a debt. But the Bible says nothing against borrowing, but the Bible does say thou shalt not steal. So if you borrow and you don't pay it back, isn't that technically stealing? That's where you get in trouble. But Paul's reminding us 
Paul's reminding us what our call is. So when you read Romans 13 8, I think that's kind of stretching it if we try to make it about obligations when it involves money. I think what Paul is getting to really is a heart situation. Where is your heart in the things of God? Because the heart is sinful. Listen, because you're sinful and I'm sinful, God had to establish the government. But here's the reminder. The law will not change your heart. Only Jesus Christ can change your heart because of the grace that God gives us. So we open this circle. We think about following authority for wrath's sake. We follow it for our conscience's sake. We follow it for love's sake. But here's the ultimate reason why we do what we're supposed to do. It's for Jesus' sake. Look with me in verses 11 through 14. And do this. So everything that he has just talked about from Romans 13, 1 to this point, he says, do it. Here's why. Knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry or drunkenness or in lewdness or in lust, not in strife or envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Paul has come a long way in giving us reason after reason for obeying the law. We obey out of a fear of our conscience. We do it out of love, but we do it for devotion of Jesus Christ. And the reason Paul is reminding us to do these things is because Jesus Christ is coming back. And you as his servant, me as his servant, need to be found faithful in his return because the completion for our salvation is near the light is dawning the new day is coming and in these verses I think Paul tells us three things that we need to be doing as a believer after reading the first ten verses here's where he gets to the nitty gritty here's the first thing Paul is telling us now that we've read all these things first is wake up you need to wake up because the day is coming. Take your copy of God's Word. Turn to Matthew 25. Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is one of the parables that Jesus shared. And Jesus is talking about the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew 25, he shares these words starting in verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet their bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. But those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out and meet him. 
Then all the virgins arose, trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should be not enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourself. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he said and answered, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Wake up, because the day is coming. And you need to be ready. You need to be ready. You need to be following the, the commands and the rules and the laws of God. You need to be doing what His Word says. You need to have a relationship with those who are authority over you and respect those in authority over you. But ultimately, you need to be ready for the salvation completion is coming. There is coming a day when you will leave this world and you will become glorified in the presence of Jesus Christ. But until that day comes, you need to be ready. And that's by knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you go back to the parable, if you see what happened in verse 10, the bridegroom shows up and those who were ready came in. And if you catch the last part of the verse, the door was shut. When Jesus comes back, there are going to be those who don't know him. And the door is being shut. And there's no hope apart from knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So for you and for me, we need to wake up and be ready. But not only do we need to wake up, some of us, all of us, Need to clean up. Take your again, take a copy of God's word. Turn over to First John chapter 2. First John chapter 2. First thing to do is wake up. The second thing is to clean up. First John chapter 2, starting in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born in him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because that did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed that we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. 
I don't know about you, but when Jesus comes, I don't want to be wearing dirty garments. I don't want to wear a garment that says I didn't know Jesus was Lord and Savior, but better yet, I don't want to wear a garment that says I wasn't following Him and His Word. Go back to Romans chapter 13 for just a second, and look what Scripture says here. It says that we are to put on, we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ there in verse 14. But if you look at verse 13, it says we're to walk properly as in the day. Verse 12, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, but let us put on the armor of what? Light. As a believer, you should be shining the brightest. And if I'm shining the brightest, that means Jesus is living in me and through me. But if I'm trying to cover him up, then my light is not shining. Listen, the reason we clean up is because we don't want to be involved with the sinful pleasures of this world. We want our light to shine the brightest. So we wake up because we know salvation is coming. We clean up because we want to be pure in his sight. But here's the last point. Grow up. We grow up. Again, look at the first part of verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. To put on means we become more and more like him. To receive by faith all that he has for us for our daily living. And we grow in our walk with him. We grow in spending time in his word. We grow as we pray to him. We don't make provision based on what the world has us. We make provision based on what God has for us. So in light of everything that we have seen today, how are you going to live as a believer in a fallen world? By loving your enemies. By respecting those in authority over you. But also being reminded that it's time for us to wake up. It's time for us to clean up. It's time for us to grow up as a believer. But you can't do any of the things that I just mentioned today. You will never respect, you'll never have a love for your enemies. You'll never have a respect for those in authority over you unless you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the only way you're going to do the things we talked about today. The only way that I can love my enemy is knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The only way I can respect those in position of authority is by knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That means I need to make sure I'm straight in my relationship with Him first, then everything else trickles down from there. Every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. As we move into a time of response, a time of invitation, I close with a thought that we started with. How are you living today? Are you living the way that Martin Luther talked about? Are you living this day and that day? Which means are you living this day and doing everything you can to honor the Lord Jesus Christ 
And are you living that day in anticipation of his return? Because it's only by living this day and that day that you can follow his commands, you can follow his word, and you can do what he has called you to do. But it starts with a relationship with him. This morning, you may have a hard time loving your enemies. This morning, you may have a hard time respecting the government because, not because of what's going on, but because of where you are in your relationship to the Father through the Son. This morning, you may have a heart that is hard because of, of what the outside world is trying to force upon you. And you're not allowing God to let him be God and be in control of all things. This morning, you may need to just come to this altar and let go of those things that are holding you back to, from being completely sold out for Him. This morning, you may need to just come and pray because you need to wake up to know the day is drawing near. You may need to come to the altar and simply clean up because you're allowing the world to control your thoughts, your actions, and the way you live. You may need to come to the altar to allow the Father to help you grow up and to put on Him beauty. This morning, there are a number of things to be praying for. My prayer is as we move to this time of invitation, this time of response, you allow the Father to speak through that still, small voice. That is my prayer this morning. Father, as we move to this time of response, this time of invitation, Father, the prayer is simply this. Your will be done. We pray this in your Son's name.